1: Your next game is going to be artistically combative, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we use martial arts to add depth to our characters and game worlds? And what techniques can we use to integrate martial culture into our stories? And how is James Mendez Hodes changing the gaming
0: world right now? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. Travis. So our topic this episode is pretty fascinating, I think. At its simplest, it's about martial arts in your games. But we're going to go a lot deeper than that. If you're like us, you probably
1: don't know a ton about martial arts. I'm kind of a martial arts dummy, really. I think the whole standing and moving kind of really turned me off of...
0: Martial arts when I was a young child. That's all it takes to turn you off of an activity (laughs) if you have to move.
1: (laughs) That sounds
0: sweaty. I don't want to do it.
1: Yeah. But what I am interested in is I'm always looking for ways to make my games more rich and meaningful and interesting. And this is sometimes overlooked when portraying martial arts in RPGs
0: is they kind of become one-dimensional Oh, completely. Or overlooked. Entirely. So that's why this subject of martial culture came into our awareness. But, like we said, we're definitely not the experts, so we invited somebody that knows arguably the most about blending martial arts and martial culture into our tabletop games. The center of that incredible
1: Venn diagram is our guest today, James Mendez Hodes, who's an incredible writer, game designer, cultural consultant, and martial artist. Now, it would actually
0: take the length of this episode to list his accomplishments and works in these areas, but to give you a super brief sampling, he's a writer and game designer behind Thousand Arrows, a tabletop role-playing game about samurai warfare, drama, and tragedy in the Japanese Warring States period, that not only gives us a completely original gaming experience of playing powerful characters, but also teaches us how to engage with historical or cultural games that have settings that we don't know much about. He's also a senior developer of the official Avatar The Last Airbender tabletop role-playing
1: game, which is currently exploding Kickstarter right now. So get your grubby little mitts in there. He also writes an extremely insightful and helpful blog, mostly revolving around the philosophies that guide a lot of his cultural consulting work. It's really, really brilliant, and it's helped
0: Jordan and I extensively. Yeah, it's actually changed the way I think about certain elements of role-playing games. So he's bringing together all of that experience today, along with his education that spans religion, dance, English literature, and Eastern classics, And with it, he's going to help us play great games. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mendez. What's good? Thank you so much for having me. Um, So you've got so many projects on the go right now. What are you working on literally today?
2: Literally today, uh, I was doing some cultural consulting for Magic the Gathering and also for Jackbox Games.
0: All right, right Jackbox on. games.
2: I cannot <laughs> reveal to you the the true nature of the. Pro- I actually, I, I literally can't reveal to you because there's like many games on a on a given Jackbox game. Um, and I just I just look at so many prompts that the the spreadsheets uh, just kind of blend into each other. Uh, they're they're mostly funny. That much <laughs> I, you.
1: I would imagine the back end of that looks pretty wild. It not nearly. What we see as end users of many Jackbox games in this house, just rows and rows and rows of jokes. Well, yeah, just it,
2: it's like the um, do you remember there was the celebrity Jeopardy sketch where they had Robin Williams, and I have no idea if it was real Robin Williams or like someone doing a Robin <laughs> Williams impression, and he told just like three jokes a minute, and like it was it was funny, but also a little bit concerning <laughs> just to listen to you know, RIP the great Robin Williams. But yeah, that's what scrolling down through all of this stuff is like for me.
1: I can only imagine.
2: It, you know, it's, I, it's like, uh, you know, Neo with Kung Fu getting played through his head. <laughs> sure. But with humor, humor from people who are much funnier than me. That's <laughs> a
0: delightfully strange experience.
2: But it's, uh, it's exciting. Being a cultural consultant on humor is particularly challenging because a lot of humor pushes boundaries by nature. So it's really, it's really exciting for me to be navigating that space where I'm thinking not only like, not is this kind, but also is this funny? How is it funny? To whom is it funny? And like, you know, breaking down and over explaining a joke to myself until it's like no longer funny in the original way, but has has started to become (laughs) funny in other esoteric ways that are not communicable to other humans.
1: Unless they've been through that experience.
2: Yes. So yeah, that's that was that was my day.
0: Okay. So for the most part, we're here to talk about martial arts. Oh right. <laughs> if if you're into that. You've got some styles that you've got a lot of experience and practice with. Yes. But what I am most curious about is that you're down to spar with pretty much anybody from any style, right?
2: Yes. Yes, yes I am. Unless you're from an evil style, but most of those are legendary and turn out not to exist. <laughs> and then actually, no, no, never mind. That's not true. If I found out that someone practiced an evil style, I would not be able to I would not be able to resist just out of sheer curiosity.
0: <laughs> so wait, what is an evil style?
2: Like if, if it was practiced by an evil wizard originally.
0: Oh, I see. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was a real uh, thing for a moment, but...
2: No, like, no, it is a real thing. Like, one example is white eyebrow boxing, which is a Chinese style. Uh, It comes from the the Shaolin, that constellation of styles, and it's traced back to the white eyebrow. He was a Shaolin monk, but he got interested in Taoist black magic, because apparently that's a thing. And was implicated in one of the many destructions of the Shaolin Temple.
1: Wow. You just blown my mind.
2: So the white eyebrow, he was implicated in the destruction of the Shaolin Temple. I think that was around like late 1500s, early 1600s, that particular uh, incident. It was not uh, forbidden for uh, Shaolin monks to study other religious or spiritual or magical traditions. Shaolin was a great repository of many different kinds of knowledge. Uh, martial medical scholarly etc etc um so the fact that someone was interested in taoism was not at all um a a problem but uh then taoists also um in, in certain periods in chinese history taoism was derided by many other philosophical schools as being sinister and underhanded and the like esoteric, magical traditions of Taoism involving like internal alchemy and that kind of thing had a, had a bad reputation, which was probably mostly undeserved. But in a time period when there were many, many different competing philosophies, it, it became kind of a big deal. So the white eyebrow was whatever form of Taoism he practiced, it was the most evil one. Uh, he ended up founding a, a style called white eyebrow boxing which is supposed to be similar to tiger style. But the other interesting thing about the white eyebrow is that he pops up several times in Chinese history, but the times in between when he pops up are far, far too long for uh, one human lifetime. So there's a couple of different ways we could interpret that. One is that different people have assumed the mantle of the white eyebrow at various different times in history. Uh, The same way that like, if you were like a rebel... In like Judea, around the year zero, you would call yourself the Messiah. It was just what you did. Um, so that's one possibility. <laughs> Another is that he is reincarnated into these different bodies. And the most interesting to me is that he actually achieved alchemical immortality.
0: Okay, this is
1: legit.
2: If that's not true, then... I don't care if it's not true because because <laughs> it's the most <laughs> compelling of it's all. Absolutely the most, absolutely the most compelling, as we're going to discover during the course of this interview. The next question I would want to ask is, well, do people who practice white eyebrow boxing, do they tell that story about themselves? Or is that only a story that other people tell about them? Because if it's only a story that other people tell about them, then I'm a jerk for perpetuating. <laughs> Personally, though, if someone, if if there were an evil wizard in my style, I would absolutely exaggerate that story as much as possible because it's awesome.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, of yes. course. You have to. What, are you going to yeah. downplay the interesting parts about your style? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. We're just ordinary folks. <laughs> yes. Get rid of the mythology. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you haven't fought anybody of the white eyebrow boxing style yet, but you're open no. to it is what you're saying. Yeah,
2: yeah, I will happily fight anybody. I'll fight slowly and safely because when I meet random people at a convention or when I'm visiting a friend, right, I'm not just like flush with pads and boxing gloves. So, you know, we have to we have to go slowly, you know, like 60% speed, We'll we'll take it slow. We'll try not to speed up too much under pressure. We'll go slowly, but for real. So, so I do this for a number of different reasons. Primarily because it's fun and because it's an awesome way to connect to someone who you've never met before. There's that scene in, in Matrix Reloaded where Neo like fights a random dude in like the entryway to an office. And then the guy's like, you never truly know someone until you fight them. And I always thought, well, this is a ridiculous Asian stereotype. And then I started doing it. So I guess I'm not <laughs> allowed to make fun of that dude in Matrix Reloaded anymore. But when I meet someone, I try, to, I try to fight them in their idiom. And if there's no particular idiom where we, we have a huge amount of crossover, um, then uh, I default to this like, all right, well, let's just do whatever we want at 60% speed and uh, just try to have fun.
0: And we'll learn something. Like, that's the goal in those situations is like, let's figure out how this style works, essentially. Yes,
2: yes, exactly.
1: Well, Jordan and I look forward to challenging you to a, a slap fight or okay. some variation of of that when we a slap <laughs> when we be. are,
2: I've been in slap fights.
1: <laughs> I think it's that's weird. about the only one I would feel even remotely confident.
2: I watch a lot of sumo wrestling, which is often technically a slap fight.
0: Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, we have a bit of our own form of combat, which is spoon fighting. Ah, yes. We would spoon fight with each other growing up.
2: Like fighting while you're spooning with each other?
0: Well, because <laughs> like nowadays different... they,
2: they just call that jiu-jitsu now. <laughs> <especially> Brazilian jiu-jitsu.
1: <laughs> no, uh, you take a spoon and you put your thumb in the hollow of the spoon and you use it very much like a shiv.
2: Oh, okay. Got it. All right. Yeah, all right, we'll do it, we'll do it.
1: It's blunted, it leaves really wicked welts, um, but it's not gonna break the skin. So it's it's great for 10 year olds to- Cool. Gouge at each to other. To learn how to <laughs> fight with metal.
2: Nice, yeah, no, that sounds, that definitely sounds like relevant to my interests. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> now that we've uh, settled the, the terms of our duel, we're hoping that you can share some thoughts around how to use martial arts in games more intentionally, which obviously we are very unfamiliar with. So uh, we're really looking forward to hearing what you can teach us in the Strategy Stateroom. Definitely.
0: This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So when we were preparing for this episode with Mendez, we came to the conclusion that there's a few main points that we're going to cover. The first is it's not just monks when we're talking about martial artists in our games. The second is that martial arts are social skills. And the third is to diversify your inspirations. So let's get into that first one. It's not just monks. If we're familiar with D&D, which Travis and I are, That's the first thought we have when we're learning about this whole world of tabletop role-playing games. How do we get out of that mindset? Right.
2: So in a lot of Western media, there's this idea, often it's implicit, in some cases, like in D&D, it's explicit, that there are some kinds of fighting which are martial arts and then other kinds of fighting which are not. So the definition that I use for like, what's a martial art is if it's a kind of fighting that you studied in like a structured learning environment then it's a martial art. And structured learning environment is general as hell. Yeah. If you consider battlefield experience to be a structured learning environment and you never step back for a moment and said like, maybe I should work on just this one element of fighting and like drill that for myself for a bit, then I guess maybe that wouldn't be a martial art. But almost everyone practices a little at some point. Even if you start out like brawling on the playground, you eventually get to the idea of like, hmm, Maybe I should figure out what about my punches is so effective if I'm winning all these fights, that kind of thing. So anything I think that you learn in a in that kind of structured learning environment, you could count as a martial art.
1: That's opening it up pretty wide, though, because if I know anything about movies, that there is a, a training montage where they get better.
2: Yes. Um, and that's I, I look at all of those as martial arts sequences. You know, if it's Western boxing, if someone, you know, runs behind the bike and they punch the meat <laughs> with like eye of the tiger playing. Yeah, absolutely. That's martial arts training. I don't, I don't, know, why it, I don't know why you wouldn't think it is. Very often in, in fantasy media um, or in the way that people talk about martial arts, there are certain things which they do classify as martial arts and there are certain things which they don't and if they're not thinking very hard about how they're making that distinction then sometimes that that distinction and definitions ends up just being a cultural thing. And again, this is not everybody who has a different definition of martial arts than me, but very often a lot of people who don't think about this too often cuz like they don't do martial arts in their real life or they just, you know, they just don't think about it that much unless they're, you know, interacting with D&D. Think of martial arts as something that's inherently Asian. If you think about that for a little bit, well, okay, no, there's got to be martial arts in other continents. There's got to be martial arts in other countries. But uh, maybe if you're from America or England or France, you might not look at like American 52 blocks or British boxing or French savate. You might not think of that as a martial arts. You might think of it as a combat sport or a fighting system. Some styles are, are adamant that like, no, we're not a martial art because we're not trying to do art or anything. We're a system for fighting because we're very serious which is a distinction that I find a little bit tiresome. But uh, at any rate, uh, very often, and definitely in older editions of D&D, there was this thing that monks and ninja and samurai were doing, and that was martial arts and was described uh, very often in older source books and you know, even present-day source books as martial arts. And then there's this other guy who's a fighter, and all he does is fighting, and he learned fighting in fighting school right but all of the fighting that they do somehow is not a martial art that doesn't make sense to me and the wizard has a staff proficiency like they had to learn that somewhere presumably there was like a basic staff combat like was there like a pe class at, at hogwarts or whatever wizard school you're at
0: there's <laughs> <laughs> gotta be for when you're running to spell's
2: Right, yeah. Or, you know, my personal favorite, Magic Academy, Luna Nova from Little Witch Academia. There's got to be a basic staff fighting class, right? And that's probably a martial art. So everybody who's interacted with fighting, I think, can think of themselves as a martial artist. And that's important for a a bunch of different reasons. One, because you don't want to do this Orientalist exceptionalist thing where... Asian fighting and whatever stereotypes you bring to your idea of what Asian fighting is like, that turns out to be martial arts. And then when someone's doing the same thing in Senegal or Sri Lanka or Georgia, then you classify it as something else. Like you don't want to just let your biases decide for you. The, the other great thing about seeing everything as martial arts and seeing all of these different styles across the world as martial arts is that it leads into the next point, which is uh, that martial arts, among the other things they are, are social skills. They're a way you learn to interact with other people. And they're especially a way you learn to interact with your enemies and whoever they are. And different styles have different conceptions of who their enemies are or are likely to be. They teach you how to interact with the people in your school in this, like, structured learning environment. And you might be learning that as a soldier. Um, You're learning to do, like, pugil stick stuff or Marine Corps martial art program if you're a Marine, that kind of thing or you could be like most of us, like me, you could be a hobbyist. Martial arts isn't a way of life for me. Uh, my way of life right now is uh, game design and cultural consulting. because That's what I had to spend most of my week doing to make the bills. And then martial arts is, it's a hobby I'm really excited about. And I think of myself as a martial artist, but it is a hobby. I could stop doing it if I wanted to. And probably not a lot would Well, I guess my physical fitness and my ability to win fights would decrease, but (laughs) if I decided to stop doing martial arts for the rest of my life, it would be okay. But, you know, as a hobbyist interacting with martial arts in this like optional context, interacting with it because I love it and because it's fun. I'm learning things about what the martial culture of my style is like, what the broader martial culture of Japanese martial arts in America and Japan are like. I'm learning uh, the differences in what training's like uh, when I'm at home at my dojo in New York versus when uh, I go to the headquarters, which is near Tokyo. And then when I'm doing a different martial art, if I, if I go play capoeira or I do wrestling or so- something else like that, then there's a whole different martial culture that those contexts have. So To interact with all of these things, I had to learn social skills. The thing that makes me excited about fighting strangers like we've been talking about is that it's a social interaction. It's an opportunity for me to learn what someone else's martial culture and martial expressions are like. That's as exciting to me as like talking with a stranger about a hobby that they have or what their work is like.
1: Well, what strikes me is interesting when you're talking about how all of these different places, you have a different set of social skills that are kind of at play when you, even within the same discipline. Mm -hmm. What strikes me as interesting is that Jordan and I have done episodes about creating cultures from values. Mm -hmm. And that even if you were to take very similar set of circumstances, as soon as you put values on top of it, now all of a sudden it's a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have, let's say a European fighting, like you say, a sword fighting, Mm -hmm. let's say a knight, kind of sword fighting well a that's uh martial art definitely and then b as soon as you have if you had two different schools with very minor changes within their core culture mm-hmm. all of a sudden that those are two very very different things and how might those get along or clash
2: exactly and this isn't, uh, martial arts aren't like exceptional in this way. If you were learning a dance form, I mean, I do, I do a martial art. That's also a dance. I like capoeira and then there's other, uh, martial arts from Africa, Georgia, India, which also are, have dance components in them. But if you're learning blues dance, if you look at the jokes that blues dancers and swing dancers tell, tell about each other, if you look at the, the stereotypes, that different medical disciplines have about like, you know, surgery bros you know, versus like people who do gastroenterology, play video games all day, that kind of thing. If you look at different role-playing games and the cultures and the kinds of people, the kinds of people we expect to see if you show up at a D&D Adventurers League event versus a home D&D event versus a Pathfinder Society event versus a Call of Cthulhu game versus a game of lasers and feelings or blades in the dark or apocalypse world. We have ideas about, the kinds of people who show up at all of these things and the different cultures that each of those things have. So even if you're not a martial artist, you've probably been in a similar circumstance to this. You probably know some of the jokes from your version of this of this circumstance. And you can probably import them to a similar situation uh, that's taking place in martial arts.
0: Totally. You're basically saying if you have a hobby, you understand this concept to some degree. Yeah. From an outside perspective and from what you've said, seems like it's a much more personal experience to meet somebody and get into martial arts with them than to just have a basic conversation. And I don't mean basic in any kind of insulting way, but just if you meet someone for 10 minutes, you're not going to get that deep into conversation. But if you do martial arts with a new person for 10 minutes, you're going to, what, come to know them a lot better, a lot quicker?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the the information that's in your head about that person becomes tied to you know their voice, their dress, how they talk and what they talk about. But then also you have this whole physical category for them.
1: That is such a better way of getting to know somebody as opposed <laughs> to the elevator small talk. So I think I've taken a few points away. I'm going to try throwing some haymakers next time I get into the elevator with a stranger.
0: <laughs> Definitely.
1: Sounds great. We
0: could incorporate uh, fighting elevators right next to the regular elevators. Yeah,
1: the the brawl elevator. Take the right elevator if you want to get crazy in there.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I like it. Thinking about how I would apply this to a character, Mm -hmm. like I I think I would start to try to get into their head about what you've been talking about, and then trying to imagine how they feel about these other characters and other classes or disciplines. Like I think it's going to be easier to kind of come up with those opinions with that in mind
2: exactly this is something that you can do for any character as long as they're getting they're getting in combat so in D, this is literally everything. yeah there's everybody is capable of being engaged and useful in a big fight that is 100 true of all characters and sometimes they're doing it with magic or by turning into a bear and other times they're doing it by throwing kicks and punches or you know wielding a, an axe and a shield But with all of these people, they're all competent combatants. So it's useful to ask in all of these cases, where did you learn to fight? What was your previous combat experience? Have you drawn blood before? Have you killed before? What kind of people were at the place where you learned to fight? Whether that's like a battlefield or a street gang or a playground, or it's a formal school or a a gym or something like that. How do you feel about the kinds of people who you fought with? There are so many people involved in the practice of martial arts there are so many people you can run into after training like what bar did you go to do people in your style drink a lot are there any like weird political opinions or i don't know like conspiracy theories that are really common in your style
1: what's really interesting to me though is that the only time that you ever see this in DD currently or at least this has just been my experience is the opinions that say uh full fighters have of magic users or vice versa is they'll say Mm -hmm. oh i don't trust that kind of fighting it's all magic i believe in my sword but realistically like you said this can have implications on any party dynamic definitely
2: and you know in the in the case of like uh, wizards versus fighters or something like that they do have completely mistrusting someone because they fight using a different weapon or a different uh, medium let's say than you do that's that's a little weird I mean that would be like if if you were in the infantry and you just didn't trust anyone in the artillery
1: <laughs> i mean i would see it because every single time i've ever seen artillery in any kind of like battlefield style movie the emperor always asks the artillery to fire on the infantry <laughs> even on your own side
2: that's not how it works <laughs>
1: There's always that double cross of yes, fire on our own men. It's fine. Yeah.
2: Or so or someone calls in the airstrike on their own, yeah, on their own position. And that was very brave of them. (laughs) And I think, like, you know, again, if you look at uh again the stereotypes the different branches of the military have about each other, they're much more interesting than complete mistrust. Yeah, just go like read Duffel blog. It's like the military version of the onion. It's all about like jokes and stereotypes different branches have about each other. There was one that was like, Air Force search and rescue is now uh, not rescuing anyone who is not also accepted Jesus as their personal savior. Because there was a stereotype that everyone in in the Air Force or a large proportion of the Air Force was evangelical Christians. Research it, like figuring out what the joke was there as someone who has not and never been in the military, uh, just took me down this whole interesting research hole into, yeah, martial culture.
1: That's absolutely wild because like, already I've learned about so many subcultures From this one conversation, (laughs) that who would guess that those exist? But I can absolutely create those within the world or the character that I'm building.
2: Yeah. Even if it's just where did you get your dagger or your staff proficiency? Like that's, that's still something. That's still, there can be a story behind that. And I, I just think like not thinking about that aspect of your character, it's like, it's like not thinking about their family. Yeah. Just being like, yeah, I just taught myself to fight just by swinging a sword in the wilderness until I was good at it. That worked for Miyamoto Musashi and nobody else, <laughs> right? Yeah, just
0: hacking at a tree and now I'm, you right. know. Right,
2: and that's like, so I think it's the, the martial arts or the martial culture equivalent of being like, yes, my character was an orphan and never had any family and never cared any, cared about anyone or anything growing up, right? It's like the most boring possible answer.
0: Interesting, yeah. yeah. Totally.
2: I've sworn off ever making, I'll make adopted characters. That's, that's different, but like characters who have like no family whatsoever. (laughs) Uh, I just, I don't do that anymore. It's not interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, they're also the bane of DMs everywhere because they have no personal connections to use.
2: Exactly. You're a badass loner. You do nothing but interact with the combat system. Then you go like sit by yourself with fire. Great. That sounds fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you combine those two and you have a badass loner that learned to fight by hitting a tree in the woods, you've got absolutely nothing to work with.
2: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was an ant. Maybe the tree got really upset and was like, no. No. Let me show you how to swing the branch different.
0: <laughs> See, now we're creating right? a See, story. I found
2: a character. I found yeah. a character <laughs> in even that terrible Marshall story that we were trying to make not as not interesting as possible. <laughs> we found a way to put another person in there.
1: Now, I have committed some of these RPG sins in the past. Now, well, let's just like say this. that I have a character that is that. No family, no friends, learn to hit the woods. How do I diversify my inspiration so that I can add some of those details to a character that I am maybe a little bit, uh, I'm catching up now and I'm realizing that maybe that was a misstep. I need to be able to add a little bit more depth to my character.
2: I would recommend looking at stories that you like about badass loners and figuring out what makes those badass loners interesting in the context of the story. But again, it's not because they're loners. It's because their being loners interact with the world and the people around them in an interesting way that continues to create more story and uh, more interest. If you're going to be a badass loner and you're going to rebuff every attempt by another player character to connect with you or by an NPC to connect with you, there's just no excuse for that. And I also don't understand why you'd want to do it unless you just didn't enjoy the non-combat part of the game that you're playing and if you really don't enjoy that then like maybe you need to have a conversation about like what game you really want to play (laughs) but even with badass loners the Mandalorian is this badass loner who has a, a difficult time connecting to a lot of people but what do we see him do in every single episode we see him reveal an interesting thing about the connections from his past we see him care about someone he runs into who he really doesn't have to care about Maybe he doesn't even want to care about. And then he ends up uh, taking care of them.
1: Or needing their help to overcome a problem.
2: Exactly, right. So they're not thinking of this guy as like, I'm a badass loner. I'm going to rebuff all connections. It's I'm a badass loner. And I'm going to find a way to use that fact about myself to make every human interaction, alien interaction, droid interaction I have interesting. So if you're going to be a badass loner who learned to fight by hitting a tree in the forest, then have a plan for that.
0: Yeah. Being the badass loner is kind of like the character flaw that has to be overcome in a story, right? Like you're you're going to change that throughout the course of the story, or you're just playing a flat character.
2: Exactly. That's the that's the thing that I think makes a good character, a good backstory, a good, you know, character voice is how it makes other people at the table feel. That's what makes it matter. Yeah. The the whole idea of focusing on martial culture is taking something that's ostensibly as simple as like waving a sword and shield and turning it into something that other player characters and the GM and the NPCs can all interact.
0: with. Yeah. In your blog, there was a part that I liked where you mentioned representing martial arts from an internal perspective. Can you expand on that a little bit more?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. So remember earlier on when I talked about with white eyebrow boxing, how if this is a, if this is a story that only other people tell about them, then, you know, that's, that's kind of a dick move. Um, so, the lies that other people tell about us, like those are often offensive stereotypes, right? Western gays or Orientalism, all that stuff. Um, and those, uh, I think it's hard to make those into like interesting, validating stories. And I'm much more interested in the lies that people tell about themselves. What is the mythology that, and again, you know, you can extend this to various other practices, religions. I think, is the perfect example. You could cynically describe a religion as a bunch of lies that people tell about themselves. But uh, I'm thinking of that in like a kind of a positive light. For example, in Japanese martial arts, there's this common idea, there's this common theme that appears in many different styles, which is that the style was founded by a refugee Chinese monk. When you trace back the style to its mythic originator, and who knows who that actually was, who knows when that actually was. Very often in the stories, it is a Chinese uh, Buddhist or Taoist monk who was fleeing some kind of persecution and then came to Japan and started what eventually became a Japanese martial art. And then, if you go to China and you look at similar stories, the origin story of the Shaolin Temple is that a martial artist from South Asia, who is also a, a Buddhist teacher named Bodhidharma, uh, came to China. Uh, when he was teaching the Shaolin monks to meditate, uh, he needed them to be able to stay awake through the long, grueling meditation sessions. So he taught them martial arts from India that he'd learned as a nobleman, uh, as, a, as a kshatriya, as a child. And then those became the ancestors of Chinese martial arts. And of course, it, it's absolutely true that Chinese people punched and wrestled each other before Bodhidharma. Like, that's, that's definitely a fact. There are some <laughs> forms of Chinese wrestling that are definitely older than Bodhidharma's and, and uh, Buddhism's appearance in China. But this story, this myth that people tell about themselves, says something important. The transmission of ideas from India to China or from China to Japan says something about what kind of authority people like to claim for themselves, because it has to do with the spread of ideas um, having to do with like Buddhist evangelism coming out of South Asia, and the idea that ideas coming from across the sea from certain places, which were considered, you know, refined cradles of civilization were given great prestige in the countries where they ended up. There are many ways this can happen, you know, cultural exchange, cultural appropriation, trade and religion and war, all these things going back and forth and immigration and emigration. There are all of these different ways that this can happen. And so if you look at that one story, this came from China, or in China, this came from India, that says something about the culture's values. In in Capoeira, there's also similarly like outlandish stories about um, one of the most famous Capoeira players of the days of yore was the Black Beetle. And... The Black Beetle was a notorious street fighter, and he'd get in huge fights with police. When you talk about, like, who's, who's the historical enemy for Capoeira, it's always been the police. In the urban period from which we get the most influential period to modern Capoeira, I would say, uh, there was this story that Black Beetle, he would always fight the cops, and he'd disarm all of them. And then he'd show up at the police station, he'd dump all the weapons in front of the police <laughs> station, he wouldn't even keep them, give them back. That's how much he he didn't need them, but he was also a magician and he knew a spell that he could use to transform into a giant black beetle to fly away from his foes or hide from them. And his great weakness was that he couldn't read. He was always struggling to get work. So there was a time when someone gave him a phony letter of introduction and they, they told him, if you bring this to such and such a person, then you will get hired. And in fact, what the the letter identified him as the notorious criminal, the Black Beetle. And that led to the police entrapping him. And he also had a a magical protection called a closed body, a corpo fichado, um, which protected him against all attacks. So even if he couldn't dodge and and outfight you using his capoeira, he could use his corpo fichado, his closed body to shrug off your blows. So they had to get an enchanted wooden dagger in order to kill him.
1: Amazing legend. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And now every
0: one of my characters needs a better legend about them.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. Exactly, right?
0: So you know all of these real world legends from a lot of the martial arts that you've learned about, but how do you use it on the GM side?
2: Well, I want to fill the world with people who the player characters want to learn to fight from. Nice. Especially if that person is an evil wizard or something <laughs> like that. Awesome. Like I, I, I talked to you earlier about the white eyebrow. You better believe that guy shows up in like a third of my games, <laughs> regardless of when and where they're set. My work on Scion 2nd Edition, White Eyebrows in there. Urban Shadows, White Eyebrows in there. He's he's absolutely my favorite NPC to insert. It's every game. It's, it's not just me. Daniel Kwan uh, wrote an adventure in uh, Candlekeep Mysteries, which prominently features uh, the White Eyebrow.
1: <laughs> and Mendez leaves a calling card when he flees the scene of a work and the
0: legend grows.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: I know that you have a different experience with this from your background, but if I'm starting to look into a martial culture because I want to base, you know, an in-game culture, if I'm the GM or a character on it, how do I know if I've gone deep enough? Any tips you can kind of give when I'm thinking about that kind of stuff?
2: Uh, definitely. So there are many ways, if you're uh, trying to learn about a martial culture, to uh, get some background in that. The most direct one is to go and learn it yourself, which is something that I've, freak- I've often done with <laughs> cultures that I found interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a little difficult right now with uh, with COVID, though. Maybe uh, opt for like polearm fighting styles. Right now. <laughs> I Like it. stay a pole arm away from everybody else. (laughs) Yeah. Fight outside. The most direct way of course, is to learn it yourself. And that is an option that you have, especially if you live in a city, but if that option is not available to you, the next thing you can do is you can watch other people do it and read about it Uh, with sport fighting styles. This is particularly easy because there are videos of people doing like the native wrestling style of their country. There are videos of people doing Senegalese wrestling, sumo wrestling. There are videos of people practicing Muay Thai and Lethway, Watch people doing Olympic judo. Watch people doing Olympic, you know, target shooting or archery. So the great thing about combat sports is that they take less time than getting into like soccer or baseball. It takes like, you know, an evening to watch a few fights. I, I got into sumo wrestling. And sumo wrestling is great because a match lasts like 10 seconds. <laughs> Whenever there's a tournament, you can watch both divisions in like hour and a half max both top two divisions and you know they ha- they have them with english commentary on the nhk japan website so yeah so sumo was really easy to get into and it's also really easy to figure out what's going on oh that man fell down i guess he lost oh they fell down at the same time guess the judges have to argue about it that's about as confusing as it gets but it's really easy to follow like whereas like if i tried to get into like cricket or baseball like I grew up playing, having to play baseball in school. I still don't really understand it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the same with uh, American football. Exactly. Played it before oh, I knew how it worked. Yeah. What
1: I love about watching some of those matches to understand what that is, is that, I mean, I'm sure I've made the mistake. I, I can't recall a specific time, but I'm sure I've made the mistake of trying to imagine or portray or, or just give the sense of a particular fight that maybe I've never seen actually happen. And as a DM or as a player, I'm going to absolutely struggle with how to describe that other than he hits you really hard or something to that effect. But seeing those styles in action, I immediately, when you say a sumo match, I can picture a sumo match. I've seen them before. And now all of a sudden I can really get into how to describe being slammed down, Um, you know, being picked up and just tossed in some cases and what that potentially feels like for my players.
2: Exactly. Um, Yeah. And it only it only takes a little bit.
0: So if somebody out there listening is uh, about to dive deep into some of these martial cultures, James, what would you like somebody to make a game about so you can play?
2: Uh, I, I, I need a sumo wrestling game like there's there's great pro wrestling games out there those are awesome next time i play a pro wrestling game i'm probably going to play one of those like a guy like akibono a sumo wrestler who went to pro wrestling after but i would i would love to see a game about like any any of those like competitive uh like wrestling forms senegalese wrestling sumo uh judo and then like other other things that are more culturally specific like uh I was writing a, like a gothic, like a vampire theme adventure. And I, I ended up like, I went down a YouTube hole watching like the traditional wrestling form from Romania. Uh, okay. The yeah. T. I, I don't really know how to pronounce it, but it was really cool. And comparing that to like the wrestling that I did growing up, that was really interesting. So I would love to see, uh, I would love to see games about that. I also would love to see a game about people who do uh, historical European martial arts, like now. Like many, many of those people are game designers. I feel like if I walked into a HEMA class and I was like, who here has made a role-playing game? All hands would go up. <laughs> or yeah, well, at least Jake Norwoods would. Um, but yeah, like I want, I definitely want a game about the people who do historical European martial arts today because those people sound really interesting. <laughs> and that martial culture sounds fascinating. And I just, I do not know it.
0: Okay, I get what you're saying. I was a little bit confused at first, but yeah, you want uh, a two levels deep kind of a game. Gotcha. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I wrote a, uh, for the, for the game Hearts of Wulin, which is a Wuxia themed, uh, like a Wuxia drama game. Um, they asked me to write a cyberpunk setting and I was like, okay, it's really just going to be about people who talk about martial arts on the internet. Um, <laughs> so cause there's this whole community of people getting in fights but only on the internet, like challenging each other to duels, which will never happen. And many of them are like in the Japanese martial art that I do. Um, so I I wrote a game that's like essentially about those people. It's called Fight Me IRL. Um, and it's about uh, how urbanization and cyberpunk and the internet and social media are going to change what it means to be a martial artist.
0: That's fantastic. I I, you're making me think yeah internet trolling is a martial culture I guess
2: absolutely yes (laughs) it definitely is once you start seeing if you start reading martial arts like feeds or like Facebook groups or something like that there's like a whole there's like genres of memes martial arts themed memes There's like people who will show up in every argument and say the same things like 80% of fights go to the ground or, but will it work in the octagon or, but will it work in the street or (laughs) my style is too deadly for competition?
0: Yeah, that would be, that would be pretty easy to port into a game. You've got the, I mean, (laughs) the martial cultures or classes that every other class just thinks is a joke that kind of exists. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes me wonder. Like, do people make fun of the College of Swords? Like, I know they make fun of it because it's like suboptimal, but like, do they make fun of it in like in character also?
0: Yeah, yeah. It'd be fun to bring over all of the meta conversations we have about the mechanics into the different cultures in the game. Exactly.
2: My my bard character is a College of Swords bard. She's um. Where the College of Swords is specifically the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> oh <my> god!
0: <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Okay, let's, let's go over to the hero stage where we can learn a bit more about you, Mendez. Yeah. And we're going to start with you explaining how, <laughs> how that intersects. All right. This is the hero stage where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives.
2: The very first role-playing game character I ever made was for Mage the Ascension, and there's a, a faction, it's the monk faction, where they're called the Akashic Brotherhood, and as monks are to D&D, the Akashic Brotherhood is to, uh, is to Mage the Ascension. Um, it's where all of the Asian religions get to live, and <laughs> all of the, the coolest martial arts are practiced by this group. So when I was making my first character, I was like, all right, I want to make a rapper. And originally, uh, she was in a, like a different tradition in the game. But then I was, I was also listening to a lot of Wu-Tang at the time. And I was like, well, wait a second. What if everything the Wu-Tang Clan says about themselves is true? So that led to the idea that the Wu-Tang Clan, the rap group from Staten Island, and the Wu-Tang Clan, the uh, Taoist priesthood based out of the uh, temple complex in the mountains in China, are in fact the same organization. So she's a, she's a Taoist priest and a battle rapper.
1: That's amazing. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So her, her fighting style combines battle rap and uh, Chinese fencing.
0: And I'm sure that you actually play out the battle rap in your games, right?
2: Yes. I can't really freestyle. So I only play her in games where I have time to like write a couplet in between actions. (laughs) There'll be times where I'll be like, no, I'm, I'm deferring initiative. Go to somebody else. I gotta, I gotta make this rhyme. (laughs)
0: i'm so close i just need a little bit longer. bust out
1: the rhyming dictionary i gotta move fast Uh, there's (laughs) only four players in this game it's coming around real
2: quick yeah
0: yeah (laughs) fantastic so clearly even your early uh characters and gaming experiences were pushing what tabletop role-playing games were doing
2: (laughs) (laughs) i like to think so yeah yeah
0: what originally motivated you to to make the shift so I'm assuming you were just busy making characters and playing games and making up games before you got into actually professionally working in game design, right?
2: I just kind of tripped and fell into game design. Like people ha- ask how, like, how did I end up doing this professionally? And I'm like, desperation?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I need to eat. Uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, like I, I majored in religion, focusing on West African and Afro-Atlantic religion with minors in dance, focusing on like North Indian classical dance, and martial arts, and English lit. So, what was I going to do with that? Not write role playing games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, then I like, I bounced between bad jobs. I went to grad school. Did I go to go for business? Did I go to law school? No, I, I got a degree in Eastern classics, great books of Japan, China, and India. So, more of the same, essentially, in terms of useless study. So, I graduated again and I was like, well, what am I going to do? I guess I'll, I'll run games for an after school program at a game store for kids. Did a lot of GMing for kids. I went to a lot of conventions and I, volunteered and I you know made characters and I made little bits of things for games adventures and hacks and stuff and and then uh in 2014 I started getting offers to to write games professionally and at first it was a side thing and then slowly it, it got bigger and bigger until it was like full time thing and uh writing games and designing games for me professionally uh that's that's difficult just doing that because like writing projects have a tendency to expand yeah. Um, They take as much time as you give them and more. So over time, I started doing a little bit less percentage wise writing and more percentage wise of my work is cultural consulting. And that's like a little bit more sustainable for me because I'm, I'm I'm a very collaborative person. I like helping other people make their dream a reality. And that's even more exciting to me than like making my own thing. When I realized that like the biggest impact I can have on this industry is probably having people hire me to tell them how they're racist
0: (laughs) and, and we,
2: we need it. it. We do. We do. And for a lot of people, you know, the idea of doing that for a living just is, is just like soul crushing. Like they're reaching for a drink, just like saying that. But like, for me, I found that it was exciting and invigorating. Uh, you know, I never thought I'd get to a place where I was using all of my useless degrees every single day at work. But here I am.
1: And it came full circle. And Mendez shoved it in everyone's faces along the way, who said, those those degrees are not going to get you anywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) My mom is super excited that I have this job. She doesn't really understand a lot of what it is. But
0: were there any challenges? Like, it sounds like it was a pretty easy transition, but I'm sure there's a little bit more to it. No,
2: it's financially awful to be a freelancer. Yeah. Yeah. If I lived in a country with like universal basic income, like a, like a social democratic welfare state, there's a reason <laughs> that all of the most advanced role-playing games come from Sweden. But yeah, for me, that was like really, really difficult. It's, you know, it's tough to get health insurance. It's tough to do freelancer taxes and pay your own self-employment tax. And like every chance that I get, I'm, I, I do say about this topic because uh, yeah, people always come to me and they're like, Oh, you, you do what you love, but for work, And I'm like, that's not necessarily a good thing. You need to be a very specific kind of personality to do that and still be able to enjoy your role-playing games in your free time. So if you really want to enjoy role-playing games, do not make it your whole ass income. (laughs) Make it your partial ass income at most. Uh, Yeah, no, freelancing is really, really hard. You know, it's like, it's stable for me now and that's great. It It was really difficult for many years. And if I hadn't had like, you know, friends who were more financially literate to, than me to like help explain this stuff to me. If I hadn't had like someone who could recommend a like an accountant who understood how to do like freelancer taxes and stuff like that. If, if I hadn't had access to like the help and the resources that all my friends uh, gave me, then it would have been even worse. Yeah. Financial, financial insecurity. It's, it's, it, it's a lot. Every freelancer I've ever interacted with, like You know, unless they're in like some really, really stable industry has had very similar experiences, um, you know, in the arts and elsewhere. So, yeah, that's that's really challenging. The other thing about having this much like, I guess, art or creativity in your career is that your emotions from day to day are in your work. You can't it's hard to like go to work and walk away from them. You know, if you have a bad day, uh, if you have a bad year, if there's a pandemic or something like that, um, it hits your work.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and creatively taxing too because there is a finite well of creativity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's at the, end of the day. Yeah. So the takeaway is, is if you want to get into freelancing move to Sweden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Tremendous. Oh man.
2: All the all the comments are going to be from Swedish freelancers <laughs> <laughs> like coming yep. down on us.
1: But let's talk
2: about. It kind of sucks not having any sunlight for a lot of the year. (laughs) Yeah, right. No.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there's there's a give and a take to everything. But let's let's talk about the give that is the incredible success of the Avatar Legends role playing game that's in Kickstarter right now.
2: Right. So yeah, if you want to want a game where everyone is a martial artist, this is your game. Yeah, uh, Avatar Legends, uh, an officially licensed tabletop role playing game based on the worlds of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra, and all of the spin off and expansion materials, and the novels and comics. This is, this is that game. It's based on uh, the Apocalypse World System from Meg and Vince Baker, which I, I keep talking about. Yeah, it's already the most funded tabletop role playing game project on kickstarter and that's just overwhelming i was i was saying earlier that like when i when i think about it i feel like the you know the white lady looking at math meme yeah you know, yeah the blonde lady and like her eyes are going back and forth like <laughs> every time i look at the kickstarter page i, I feel like that
0: <laughs> just way too much because it's still over 20 days left as of this recording
2: yeah all this happened in a week i'm really excited about it like i'm running play tests now there are lots and lots of fun. One of the most exciting parts of character creation in this game is going to every individual character and saying, like, what makes your fighting style unique? Why? What about your fighting style? Are you like the only person in the world, like you or you and your teacher? What, what about it makes you really different? And the <laughs> answers to that are always like, always really fascinating. And then that, that creativity becomes like the foundation of Uh, The fighting style that you develop over the course of the game, you start out with like a a menu of like basic techniques that are common to everybody. And then over the course of the game, as you level up, as you meet uh, different teachers, your fighting style is going to evolve and you're going to get new techniques uh, for your fighting style based on not just leveling up, but also on like the people who you interact with. So everything that you're learning, it comes from someone. And this kind of, this cultural aspect, this aspect of cultural transmission is a big part of, uh, is a big part of the game. And, you know, look at the list of, uh, they're called legends that you could like fight against or learn to fight from. It's like all kinds of exciting NPCs from from the the series that you know, who were essentially like someone else's PCs in the original material, so.
0: That adds such a cool dynamic to the game world. Like- (laughs) To know that this, this badass character in the world is not just someone that I can fight and talk to, but someone that I can develop my own character with. I love that mechanic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you're, you're not just learning from like Sokka and Katara. Like Azula's on that list. Kuvira is on that list. So um, it's, it's people you're going to have complicated relationships with.
0: That's so neat. Which are the best ones? Speaking yeah, of the complicated yes. relations, that was another mind-blowing moment when I was reading the Quick Start Guide was the conditions that you gain as a character and how to resolve those, like the emotional conditions, right? Uh, you
2: have five sort of emotional hit points, but they're not just any hit points. Each of those is an emotional, an emotional condition that you can take, angry, afraid, foolish, uh, insecure, or guilty. Uh, like on the show, when you get hit and when bad stuff happens to you, uh, you feel bad about it in ways that are very real to your character and that you can't just shake off. So whenever you get one of those conditions, it gives you negative modifiers to certain things that you might be doing. And in order to clear that condition, you either have to get emotional support from another person, like from another PC who interacts with you using like the comfort or support move, which is hugely powerful and important to character recovery. Or you have to do something that's specific to that condition uh, to shake it off.
1: That's so good. And that's so brilliant. And I'm so excited to see this mechanic play out because, you know, in, in games like Dungeons and Dragons, if you have the coolest, most uh, integrated party, they are maybe making battle plans together and actually sticking to them. They are never getting to the place where they're using help actions. And beyond that, they're never considering this Person needs my emotional support in this moment, mm-hmm. and that is making a mechanic out of role playing, and that's so interesting to me. That's absolutely fascinating. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It means a lot to us. You've been such a uh, an incredible resource for us silently in the background um, from reading <laughs> your blog and yeah, hearing more about uh, your perspectives on cultural aspects of. RPGs, like it's it's been hugely helpful and hugely inspirational. So thank you very much.
2: You're welcome. I am so glad that it's been it's been useful to you. Um, that's that's the thing that that keeps me going emotionally from week to week is when people someone says like, yeah, I got a something like you know, I got in an argument and it would have taken an hour, but I could just link them to one article on your blog and then I could go do something <laughs> else in my life, you know. Or someone's like, yeah, no, I, I read your article and now like this is what the orcs are like in my game and like that 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 always that keeps me afloat in the hard weeks.
0: Yeah, genuinely thank you for that. You're welcome. We'll have all of these links in the episode notes, but you can follow and support James Mendez Hodes on his website, jamesmendezhodes.com, on Twitter at lula vampiro. That's L U L A vampiro, V A M P I R O, on Facebook at lula.vampiro and you can check out his Patreon, which is patreon.com/slash MNDZ.
1: And as always, thanks to our patrons who Jordan and I look forward to fighting at some point in the future: Felix R., Chris F., I see Spiders Where There Are None, The Senate, Lucas D., Lila G., The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W., Tyler G., Ty N., Heavy Arms, Eric R., Aldrost, Leprechaun, and Will HP. We are coming for you. <laughs> Threatening our patrons. That's the way to do it.
0: (laughs) As always, thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And you can join an awesome community of players and DMs on our Discord. Thanks Thanks for for listening. 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 And play great games. Play great games. (laughs)